You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Paul Oster. Hello? Hello, could I please speak with Paul Oster? Ah, but you are speaking with Paul Oster. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to be speaking with you, Paul. How are you? Fine, how are you? T- tell me, what am I interrupting for the moment? What, what? Uh, nothing, nothing. I was expecting your call. And what, 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 what did you do today? What did I do today? I um, actually have been reading through a screenplay of Timbuktu that the screenwriter's been working on for about a year and a half, and I just got a new version, and I've been going through it and uh, marking it up for comments. And when we're finished, I'm going to be calling him, and we're going to discuss it. Paul, for the longest time... Are you recording this now? Yes, for the for the longest time, I um, I've been really taken by this one th- sentence that you you quote of of George Oppen, where you say, as my friend George Oppen once said to me about getting old, "What a strange thing to happen to a little boy." <laughs> and I, I think about it all the time. <laughs> With a big birthday coming up soon, uh, I'm thinking about it all every day now. <laughs> I have to say that that sentence, Paul, is I'm thinking about it more and more myself. But it it's it's haunting, and and what is it about about this sentence that so haunts you? Well, I think that um, I suppose a continuous sense of self. Uh, emerges in a person at around age six or so when you're able to reflect on the fact that you're thinking of thought and can tell yourself that you're thinking that thought. And I think out of that self-consciousness comes uh, the capability of uh, creating a narrative inside yourself about yourself. And so we go through our lives telling the story of ourselves to ourselves, and it's pretty much unbroken from age six until until the end, as long as we don't lose our marbles somewhere along the way. So I'm about to turn 70, but I still feel very connected to my six-year-old self. I don't feel that I'm any different <laughs> from that. So it is an odd thing to feel young in one way, inside, and yet to see that your body has really become quite different and is <laughs> falling apart. So, so it's it's really, I mean, in this in this organ symphony, as it were, it's really about what it means also to to look into a mirror. Um, well, I wouldn't say that exactly, but um, I suppose you could say that. But I, that's not how I think of it. It's, for me, it's not about seeing; it's about feeling. Oh, that's so in- that's so interesting, and I'm I'm wondering how. And you probably knew that I might be asking you this. How, what you just said about this tremendous sentence of of George Oppen and and your commentary connects in some perhaps profound way with your your new novel Four Three Two One. Uh, undoubtedly, it does. Um, 
And I, I, uh, you know, this is by far the longest book I've ever written. But I think um, it came about, uh, I was laying the groundwork for it without realizing it in the two previous books that I published, which were both autobiographical works, Winter Journal and then Report from the Interior, where I found myself revisiting my childhood perhaps more intensely than I've ever done in my adult life. And I think dwelling on those things gave me the impetus to want to write a novel about growing up. And um, so the result is this massive elephant of a book that I've, I've finished. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that the, the four perspectives might have something to do also with the way in which you, you commented upon open sentence. Mm, no, I wouldn't say that. Um, I've just been fascinated all my life, and I think most people are, about the big question, what if? What if, what if yes. things had been slightly different? How would my life have been different then? Um, uh, you know, we often talk about it in terms of individual decisions, right? You're walking down a road and you turn left and one thing happens to you or you turn right and another thing happens to you. Uh, but also, there are outer circumstances that determine who we are. I mean, where you grow up, for example, whether you grow up uh, in wartime or peacetime, whether there are bombs dropping on your house or not, uh, just to cite a very clear and obvious example of, you know, what the outside can do to us and how it can transform our insides. But then in more, in more subtle ways, what if um, uh, one of your parents dies when you're very young and yeah. that would certainly change the course of your life or if your parents get divorced when you're very young or any number of things. If you, for example, are in an accident and you lose your leg when you're eight years old, how that would affect your life. All these different possibilities are always playing out in our heads and I think the book tries to capture that. And you know, it, 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 it reminded me of, of a very early time in my life when in Europe, you know, one, one has a, a year where one studies philosophy. And I remember that um, there was one philosopher we read who said that if you hadn't taken this leaf, maybe this bird would have landed on it and its fate would have been so utterly different. Mm-hmm. If, if the slightest little transformation, the slightest little change could change the destiny of every living creature. Well, one feels that, and uh, one feels that everything is interconnected, that, um, you know, there's the famous story about what the, the, the wings of a butterfly flapping 5,000 miles away will affect the weather somewhere else. Um, you know, uh, it's not that, we, I, I, I just feel we are always thinking about alternatives. Um, it's especially true, um, well, things like political elections, and we've just lived through this, how close it was, how, how enormous the consequences are, um, or the 2000 election, another example, when we were talking about only literally a handful of votes uh, making the difference, we wouldn't have had a war in Iraq if 
Gore had been made president, um, and think of the enormous consequences of that particular thing. So, um, uh, you watch sports, and and you see, uh, you know, a, an outfielder drop a ball, and the whole course of the game changes. And it's just as easy to imagine him catching the ball, which he would normally do. So, unexpected things are happening all the time, and uh, and reality is utterly affected by what what happens. You know, I I was so taken, Paul, to to read that one of your 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 great and important rediscoveries now is someone who is matter, who matters more and more to me as well is is James Baldwin and there's there a, a few sentences of Baldwin that truly uh, haunt me at this moment one of them is he he says you think your pain and your heart break are, un, are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. <laughs> well, he's a wonderful writer. I, I rediscovered him um, recently uh, as I was preparing to write the book, uh, uh, which is set in the 50s and 60s. Um, I thought I should reread some of the important writers of the period. And I hadn't read Baldwin since high school, which goes all the way back to the mid-60s, and I had forgotten how good he is, and uh, I, I, I bought myself, you know, Library of America editions, and so I had complete works, and uh, I just plowed through it, first feeling a sense of duty that I should be doing it, and then a sense of immense pleasure and admiration. Um, he really is a, an extraordinarily good writer, and brave, and also uh, filled with feeling. I mean, everything from rage to exquisite tenderness. And um, so he's really one of our, our good ones, one of the good writers America's produced. Um, are you are you familiar with this, this movie that is about to come out? Paul? I've heard about it. I haven't seen it. Oh, oh, Paul, Paul, please make a note of it. Um, it's called I'm Not Your Negro. Yes, it's, I know. You I know, know about it. It's, it's this man, extraordinary man, Raoul Peck, who I must admit I didn't know of before. Oh, who, no, I, I know who he is. You I've do. I met him and, uh, years ago. And, uh, and tremendous, so, uh, tremendous. I'm, I'm waiting to see it. It hasn't been, there was a brief release here in New York. Uh, Which I went so, to. I went so to the... qualify for the Oscars, but it's right. not in general release yet. No, I went to it in, in a movie theater that I know you know. The which Metrograph. I, yes, I, I went that night to the Metrograph and, and got to meet him as well. And he, he's just extraordinary. His, his, his life, uh, born in, in Haiti, grew up in Congo, lives in Paris and New York. And, and the film is made only, I mean, for you more than anybody I could think of now, the, the, the film is made only of Baldwin's words. Mm -hmm. so, so whenever the, his words are not uttered by him, they're uttered by Samuel Jackson. Mm -hmm. And it's really extraordinary. I'll be very, very eager and curious to hear what you think yeah. uh, you think about him. Well, it's one of the movies I'm looking forward to. Um, so, 
You know, and and an, another sentence from from Baldwin that seems to me so so important, and I wonder how it resonates with you. He he writes, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. Mm, very good. Well, yes, he's absolutely right about that. Um, you you mentioned a, a moment ago this this election and um, our our new as it were presidency. Um, does it simply and uh, only fill you with gloom? Um, gloom and misery, grief and uh, ever increasing anger. Uh, that's how I feel about it. I don't see a single ray of light in these events at all. It's all bad, and uh, I, I have nothing positive to say about it at all. It's really, truly one of the most depressing things that I've ever witnessed as an American. Do you do you think it might it might energize people in one form or another? Or I'm hoping there's going to be a whole new generation of activists. Um, I'm hoping the young people are going to mobilize and uh, and and push back because uh, we have to be very vigilant now. Um, otherwise, if if they do what they say they want to do. Um, we're going to lose the country. It's not going to be America anymore. And all these institutions that we've always looked upon as granite buildings, we're going to understand they're actually made out of soap. And um, and when they start shooting their hoses at those places, it's just going to be a lot of suds in the street and nothing much to keep us going as a country. So it's very scary to me. Uh, Paul, you, you just said keep us going. What, what keeps... Um, what keeps you going? You know, I asked that question recently to to John Berger, and his response was extraordinary. I, I said, "What what keeps you going, John?" And he said, "The next page." Well, that's a good answer. Although poor John Berger is not going anymore at the moment because he died recently. But uh, of course, uh, it's the next page. And it's, it's, it's the next day also. I mean, uh, uh, the older you get, the more, uh, the more you value just the mere fact of being alive. And uh, I don't take it for granted, I assure you. Is, is there any character uh, you, you feel in, a, in American literature that makes you able to make sense of, of the rise of, of Donald Trump? Character? No, I wouldn't say so. Um, Is no. there any, any, anything that prepared us for this? I think um, the reasons why he got to be elected are so complicated, we just simply don't have time to discuss it today. Right. Take hours and hours um, to, to go into it. Um, the country has had these moments in the past when we've been utterly divided. Um, I mean, uh, I would say, of course, the Civil War being the most obvious moment of those terrible years uh, when we were actually killing one another. Um, the 60s were also a time of tremendous division. Uh, but 
but now it's been building and building until there seems to be two Americas, and they don't talk to each other anymore. Um, and it's difficult uh, when you have a Republican Party whose stated goal was to simply block everything President Obama wanted to do as a matter of principle, um, then the government's not functioning anymore, and it hasn't been functioning. And um, out of this disarray, um, uh, maniacs can come forward who seem to be um, talking about how to fix things when, in fact, they're only interested in smashing them. And uh, it's it's quite frightening. If you really listen to what, what Trump says, um, you go nuts. Paul, to, to come back to, to 4321. Um, Paul, you, have you had a chance to read it? Yes, and you, 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 you mentioned the extraordinary lengths of it, uh, and that, in, in a sense, I nearly feel that you are amazed by, by, by the expansiveness of it, and I'm wondering whether, in, in some way, this, this, this huge tome you've put forward is um, a way a nod to some of the the writers you've loved most in your life, like like Dostoevsky, for instance. No, I think it's just simply um, the the way the book is structured. It had to be big. Um, it wasn't that I set out to write uh, X number of pages. In fact, I think you, you say expansive. Well, yes, I suppose it is. But at the same time, I feel it's very lean. And um, right. And each chapter is like a, a long short story or a short novella. And um, I stripped away so much. Um, did I you? Did you? Other stories, other characters, other things I, I was planning on exploring. And then each time I was inside one of these chapters, I realized I had to make it very spare. And so I said elephant earlier, but I think it's a sprinting elephant. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't really digress very much at all. It's, it sticks to certain things and explores them and uh, doesn't concern itself with 10 million other things. Um, I, I wonder if you, if you, if you have the, the, the book in front of you. Uh, I can I can get it easily because I I would love you I would love you to read a page um, if you could I'd be happy to I'll read you the first paragraph Oh that would be that. Oh that would be one, well you know in 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 a sense that that would be a, a wonderful way of 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 giving appetite to 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 the listeners Now I could tell you uh this um this first paragraph it's based on a joke that I heard which I, a, joke a joke I love tell, for a long time but I had never heard it until a few years ago. I changed it slightly. And also, uh, um, in this first paragraph, there's a ship that's mentioned called the Empress of China. And I just wanted to let you know that uh, the, the reason why I put that in is because in his wonderful book about Jewish immigrants in America, Irving Howe's book, uh, The World of Our Fathers, he talks about how the Yiddish press operated in New York um, 100 years ago, 120 years ago, and that they often would, um, the journalists would look at the uh, 
New York English language papers to get stories to to write about in Yiddish. And one of one of the journalists saw a headline in a newspaper: "Empress of China on maiden voyage." That you know the name of the ship. <laughs> and then the Yiddish paper said, "Empress of China coming to America to look for a husband." <laughs> oh, this is fantastic! <laughs> the funniest thing about you know misunderstanding a language. So. I put the Empress of China in, so. and, and and in so many ways, it the the, the passage you're about to read is also a, a fabulous passage about misunderstanding of language. Exactly, exactly. So it's doubly there in the, in the paragraph. So here it is. According to family legends, Ferguson's grandfather departed on foot from his native city of Minsk with 100 rubles sewn into the lining of his jacket traveled west to Hamburg through Warsaw and Berlin, and then booked passage on a ship called the Empress of China, which crossed the Atlantic in rough winter storms and sailed into New York Harbor on the first day of the 20th century. While waiting to be interviewed by an immigration official at Ellis Island, he struck up a conversation with a fellow Russian Jew. The man said to him, Forget the name Reznikov. It won't do you any good here. You need an American name for your new life in America, something with a good American ring to it. Since English was still an alien tongue to Isaac Reznikov in 1900, he asked his older, more experienced compatriot for a suggestion. Tell them you're Rockefeller, the man said. You can't go wrong with that. Hour passed, then another hour, and by the time the 19-year-old Reznikov sat down to be questioned by the immigration official, he'd forgotten the name the man had told him to give. Your name, the official asked, slapping his head in frustration. The weary immigrant blurted out in Yiddish, Ich hab vergessen, I've forgotten. And so it was that Isaac Reznikov began his new life in America as Ichabod Ferguson. <laughs> it's a, f- a fantastic. I mean, it's a fantastic beginning, and I'm I'm wondering what made you want to begin, in a sense, with a with a joke. Well, because the joke is really finally not a joke, and right. uh, it's about the multiple possibilities that are lying in front of a person. Suddenly, <clears throat> I mean, I'm writing a book in which there are four versions of the same person, and here. Right in the first paragraph, we have a man with three possibly different names, Reznikov, Rockefeller, or Ferguson, and he's one of those, and uh, he becomes, in this case, Ferguson, but if he had remembered Rockefeller, he would have been Rockefeller, and if he hadn't met the old man, he never would have uh, given up his name of Reznikov. So, <laughs> and, now, and now he has a name that says, I forgot. Yeah, that's right. I forgot, and uh, and so he'll walk through life, and and American people will think he's a Scottish Presbyterian, and um, you know somehow altering his identity in the very act of having made this mistake. And and, and what and what impact uh, does our name have on our identity? What impact is his forgetfulness uh, um, going to have on his life later on? I mean, these these questions, and, and I'm so glad you said you know it's it's a joke which ends up not being funny like so many jokes jokes are sometimes very serious matters absolutely absolutely so we don't return to this uh, story uh, really until the very end of the book uh, and then we where it comes back it comes 
back. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I thought that was that was a very interesting way of of sort of ending this symphony. But be, just before the 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 book ends, there's a passage that I I really like, which I'll I'll read to you, and I'd love your comment commentary on it. It's very much towards the end. Because of his novel, Ferguson was also making the bleak but necessary journey through the literature of suicide. And in order to keep pace with him, Celia read some of those books as well, beginning with philosophical, sociological, and psychological essays and studies by Hume, Schopenhauer, Durkheim, and Menninger, then numerous accounts from the distant past and near present, Empedocles and his mystic leap into the flames of Mount Etna, Socrates, Hemlock, Mark Antony, Sword, the mass suicide of Jewish rebels at Masada, Plutarch's description of Cato's self-murder in parallel lives, plucking out his own bowels in front of his son, his doctor, and his servants, the disgraced boy genius Thomas Chatterton, arsenic, the Russian poet Marina Tsvetaya, hanging, Hart Crane, jumping off a ship into the Gulf of Mexico, George Eastman, a gunshot to the heart, Hermann Göring, Sinaid, and most pertinent of all, the opening sentences from the myths of Sisyphus. There is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. Yes, well, he's doing uh, his his due diligence here because he's a young man uh, in the process of writing a novel about a wave of an epidemic of suicides in a town and uh, written from the point of view of a doctor. This is the novel, a novel within my novel. And, um, and uh, this Ferguson is a assiduous uh, person and he is doing his research and he wants to know everything he possibly can about this bleak subject of suicide. And um, the, the Camus line is, you know, remains, I hadn't read it in, in, in years, it remains so tremendously powerful. And we recall how certain sentences that we read when we were young adolescents really transformed us. And re reading it now, I think... I think Camus is probably right, and you have your characters think about whether he might be right or not. They're, they're not sure. You know, Celia and Ferguson, they talk, is he right? Maybe. Yeah. Probably, but not necessarily. No, I, I love it. You have, what do you think, Celia? Is Camus right or wrong? Probably right, but then again... I agree with you. Probably right, but not necessarily. It's so. Um, I, I, are you? Do you feel in any way um, ambivalent? Um, I, I'm just not sure that really <sighs> is the fundamental task of philosophy. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> so I, 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 I think it could be. But I'm I'm just not sure. I've never I've never really known. It's a very dramatic way to begin an essay for yeah. sure. And uh, and I think Camus does his very best to to make uh, a case for that argument. But whether whether he fully makes the case is is another question. Paul, in 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 closing, um, 
I'm wondering both what you're, you're, you're reading at the present time and most importantly to me, what you go back to with great pleasure. And I would say in, in, in the latter part of my question, I'm, I'm truly interested in, in what poets matter to you now. Mm-hmm. Well, to tell you the truth, uh, what I'm reading now is something I'm going back to. It's about the fourth time I've read it, uh, is Don Quixote, um, which I think is one of my very favorite books of all, one of the greatest novels. It's the first novel, really, but it's the novel in which all the questions about what a novel is are raised, and uh, and it's so funny, too. And it so, really is, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I think I have four or five different translations of it on my on my shelf. Um, so, but as far as poets go, um, I'm, I'm returning again and again to the ones that have meant the most to me. Um, I mean, Shakespeare being one of them, but, um, and Sir Thomas Wyatt being another, uh, English language poets, but, um, European poets as well. Um, Holderling, I keep reading. Leopardi, I keep reading. Um, Keats, I keep reading. Um, um, among, uh, and then Emily Dickinson, uh, Blake, Whitman. Um, I, I go back to them all the time. But then the French, uh, uh, Apollinaire. Uh, in fact, in the novel that you've read, I, I did a translation of an Apollinaire poem, yeah. which is... Uh, purported to be by one of the characters, uh, The Pretty Redhead, an extraordinary poem, um, which you probably know. I do, I, 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 I do, I do. And, you know, uh, most recently I had a phone call with W.S. Merwin. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it, I, I, I adore his poetry, and I, I've spoken to him before, but had never had occasion to speak to him on the phone in this way. And I reminded him of something he once said to me, which was, he said, I said to him that I was not reading as much poetry as I, as I used to. And I, and I knew that in asking you this question, this would not be the case. And he said to me, you know, Paul, you're wrong. You, you shouldn't be reading poetry. You should be reading, you should read poems. Well, that's a good point. I, I think it's very well taken. I, I knew Merwin a little bit back in the old days, and he, uh, actually when I was a student, um, I took a translation class at Columbia, and he was a visiting teacher, and he happened to be the person who read my work, and so that class was pretty much a conversation just between the two of us. Oh and, gosh, uh, I never knew this. Do you remember anything in particular? Yeah, I, I remember the poet. It was Jacques Dupin, a French poet. I had started translating then when I was about 20 years old. Jacques um, uh, became one of my closest friends in the world. He died just a few years ago at age 85. Um, and Merwin liked Dupin's poems a lot, and so we had a very fruitful conversation. And uh, my French still wasn't perfect at that point, so he pointed out some errors. It was altogether encouraging, and I, I haven't forgotten it. Yeah, so he encouraged you to to continue translating, which you, you did a lot of. And, you know, he, um, his, his story, which is 
so important in his life is that he met Pound, and Pound said to him, you know, the first thing you need to do is translate. Yes, yes. Well, that was Pound's advice to all young poets, and it's very good advice. And uh, I think it really teaches you how to get into the... uh, the interstices, the bowels of, of, of writing, and somehow the, the pressure's off. You know, you don't have to be the brilliant innovator. You just have to be a great reader and, a, and someone passionate about words. And uh, I think it's a wonderful training ground for, for young writers is translating great work, work that you yourself would be utterly incapable of producing at, at that age. Paul, I, I, I wonder, do you, do you know poems by heart? Just a few. Uh, I have a terrible memory, so I know a few, but not, not as many as I would like. Is, is there one that you know by heart that you could recite now from memory? Well, I'm trying to think. I'll, I'll probably stumble a bit. I mentioned Wyatt, um, who, you know, it comes 50 years before Shakespeare. So he's, he's our first great English lyric poet. Um, and uh, let me see if I can if I can sum it up to the poem. Whoso list to hunt, I know where is an hind, a hind is a deer. But as for me, alas, I may no more. The vain travail hath wearied me so sore, I'm of them that farthest cometh behind. Yet may I by no means my wearied mind uh, draw from the deer, for as she fleeth afore, fainting I follow. I leave off, therefore, since in a net I seek to hold the wind. And da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. That's how, how it ends. For lowly me tundry, for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. And uh, it's probably a poem written about Anne Boleyn, with whom I think he had an affair. And Caesar, in this case, would be Henry VIII. Hmm? Oh, poor it's pretty wonderful. It's poem, pretty. It's, it? pre- it's pretty wonderful, and I've I I never heard it, so I I feel doubly rewarded. Paul, it's such a pleasure to talk to you, and I I can't wait until next we see each other. And please do go and see. I'm not your Negro. It's planning going, to. I have every intention yeah. of seeing it. And thank you, Paul. Thank, a, thank you very very much. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. For me too. Okay. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.